Luke chapter 19, verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Beth, uh, Bethphage, Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent their way and found it, just as he said to them. But as they were loosening the colt, the owners of it said to him, why are you loosening the colt? So this is really interesting, guys. And you just have to see the humor that's in here where Jesus says, hey, just go get me a colt, right? Just go, just go get it. You know, and, and, and the disciples, they come and they go into this guy's backyard, essentially, and just start taking his colt, right? And he's like, what are you doing with my donkey? You know, and, and they're like, oh, the Lord needs it. He's like, oh, okay. Like, that's a good enough answer. You know, I just want you to imagine, because I, I, one thing I love doing, especially with the youth, is like, this actually happened, you know? So I want you guys to imagine someone comes into your backyard and just starts, just starts taking your dog, Right? They're just saying, you know, like, what are you doing with my dog? The Lord has need of it. Right? Are, are you just going to say, oh, of course. <laughs> of course, the Lord has need of it. Quick, God told me to take your dog. <laughs> no time. Right? So I just, I just want you I, just to wrap your heads around this. These people are like, all right, just <laughs> take my donkey. Right? Just go ahead, take it. Um, and it says, but as they were loosening the colt, the owner said to them, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, <laughs> the Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and Jesus, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Let's pray. Father, um, I just want to recognize uh, your glory, Lord, tonight. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that uh, you decide to uh, put strength in, in your spirit and you decide to dwell within earthen vessels. Lord, uh, people as unimportant and as fragile, as delicate as ourselves um, are able to hold your spirit um, so powerful and mighty. The same spirit that hovered upon the waters as you created the earth. Uh, God, that is... That is mind-blowing that you would choose such weak and, and weary vessels as ourselves. So, Father, we, we, don't, we don't call upon our own cognitive strength tonight. We don't rely on our own attitudes and our own emotions and our own strength, God. But we implore of what actually has strength, Lord, not our flesh, but your spirit that dwells within us. And we implore of your mighty spirit that, God, you would be able to give us ears to hear, Jesus. Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, Lord. I, I say that every prayer because it's so necessary. Because your word is always holding worth, Lord. But, but it takes a, a spirit-led heart to see the worth in it. 
And so, Lord, I, I, I pray that for each and every individual, uh, especially myself. God, that I would be able to see the beauty that lies within your holy scriptures. So, Lord, uh, we desire you tonight. We desire to know you. If nothing else, God, just to know you deeper tonight. Lord, we pray these things. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. So guys, uh, Easter is almost upon us, right? Easter is almost upon us. And, and, and what, is, what is incredible, what is incredible about the Easter story is not just the fact that Christ rose again on the third day, hallelujah, but the, the events leading up to it were so intense, right? That, that, that the weight of Easter Sunday is, is, is given weight by the cross as well, isn't it? The severity of the cross gives weight to the resurrection. And we see that the cross is incredibly significant as we see here on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry a week before our Savior's uh, death and resurrection. We see here that there's so much weight because here's the thing. Jesus is on his tail end of his third year of public ministry. I, I, I think sometimes I forget that, that, that Jesus is only on his third year of ministry, right? Isn't that interesting? That he had worked as a carpenter all the way up until, you know, historians believe till he was around 30. And then he, he had three years of ministry. Isn't that interesting? He had three years of ministry until he would die and rise again and then allow us to continue the ministry through the works of the Holy Spirit. But I, I always find, isn't that an incredibly short time? Some of us, some of you guys have been in your jobs for over 10, 15, some of you 25, 30 years, right? Some of you have been in your vocations for, for 10 times as long as Jesus was in his ministry here on earth. And I find that mind-blowing that he can get so much done within three years. Isn't that crazy? And that he can make so many enemies in three years, right? <laughs> that he can make so many, I can identify with that for sure, right? I can't identify maybe with the fruitfulness, but I can make that many enemies in three years for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Jesus made so many enemies within that three years as well. And he's on the tail end where, where people are, are, are just waiting they're waiting for any excuse to kill Jesus. Any excuse to put him away. And word of his miracles had spread throughout all the land. In fact, in fact, the gospel of John, it says in verse 17, um, it says the crowd that had been with him when, La when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. It was actually, guys, the, the resurrection of Lazarus, him awakening Lazarus from the dead. We don't really pay attention to this a lot, but it, if Jesus hadn't uh, done what he did with Lazarus, raising him from the dead, he probably would have had more time in his public ministry because when word started spreading that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, that's when people started talking. That's when, that's when the Pharisees started talking. We got to kill him. We got to do away with him. Word of Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead had caused people to awaken to this idea it was this, because people do magic tricks all the time, right? That's just like people are doing tricks and miracles, but raising someone from the dead, that is an exclusively messianic role, is it not? 
That is, that is exclusively a divine attribute. Raising Lazarus from the dead awakened people to the idea that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. That he was indeed the Messiah that they had been waiting for. That he is the author of life. The Messiah. So people are finally getting this, right? They're finally starting to understand. But we know something that they don't know. Right? We know something that they don't know. That Jesus is on his way and in pursuit of not glory and in, in, in taking over the kingdom, not overthrowing Rome, but he's headed to the cross. We know that, right? We know the whole story. They don't. They don't realize that. And I think it's really important that we know that they don't know that. That Jesus, when he is walking down on this cult and he is allowing people to worship him as God, they think that he is going to march straight in to the kingdom. They think he's going to march straight in and just overthrow the government and, and, and establish new order. That is their perspective. What we know is that in this moment, he is in pursuit of the cross. The cross didn't just happen to Jesus. He pursued it, right? Jesus was not some victim of a hate crime. He pursued the cross actively. It wasn't like this, this oh man, like if, if only Jesus wasn't persecuted. No, Jesus actively went for the cross, walked towards it. He was marching towards the cross. And I say pursue because it says in Hebrews 12 too, it says looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That Jesus went towards the cross. And later on in John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus is having a conversation with the Father. He's having a very intimate, intimate conversation with God the Father. And it says right here in verse 27 of John chapter 12, it says, my soul is troubled. Jesus says that to God. You guys know that? That Jesus didn't always like, yeah, life rocks, you know. He didn't have this fake optimism that a lot of Christians like to portray, right? This fake air of, oh, life is always good, totally hashtag blessed, right? But Jesus said this, now my soul is troubled. He knows he's about to be crucified. He says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus is saying, like, what, what am I supposed to say, God? Save me? I know why I'm here. But my soul is troubled. What, what shall I say, God? Save me? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This amazing picture of Jesus' intimate time just between him and God. It, it, and, it's, and it's great that there are a few times in scripture where we get to peer into that, right? We get to peer into when Jesus and God were just dialoguing between the two of them. It doesn't happen a lot in scripture. But, but we get to peer into this moment where, where Jesus says, I'm so troubled and I don't want to do this. But, but for this very reason, I'm here. 
I didn't come here to, uh, I didn't come here to turn water into wine. I didn't come here to preach and overthrow anything. I, I, I didn't, I came to die. It's for this hour I've come. This is, this is the reason I'm here. Father, all, all I guess I can ask is that through this pain, you would be glorified. Right? That's all God can ask. That's all Jesus asks. Like, Lord, all I can ask now is that your name would be glorified. And God says, I have glorified it. And guess what? I'm going to glorify it again. Right? Jesus has begun his active pursuit of grabbing your sin, grabbing my sin, nailing it to the cross, drop kicking it, slamming it with a chair, doing everything, right? Getting ready to actively defeat your sin. We have to keep this in mind. We know this, right, about God. We know this about Jesus. We know this, but they don't. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, isn't it? Right? Hindsight's always twenty twenty. Isn't it interesting that this crowd shouting, oh, look at him who comes in the name of David. They're, they're shouting and they're cheering for Jesus because they think he's going to do something specific. But it turns out God just did the total opposite. So we have to be cognizant. We have to be aware of this fact that are we cheering on God because we've dreamed up some sort of mission, right? Because we've dreamed up some sort of vision that we think God's going to do. And are we open for that change when God just says, hey, I'm not going to do anything you just expected me to do, right? You may have come to church for this reason. You may have, you know, duh, like, you know, spoken for this reason. You may be part of this organization or whatever because you think that's where I'm going. Are you open to that not being my will, Right? Are you still going to be putting your clothes down? Are you still going to be cheering Hosanna when I'm going to the cross and not to the kingdom? Not to the palace? Are you going to be cheering for me when I come on a donkey instead of a white war horse? Right? Are you going to cheer for me when I come through a local nonprofit and not through the White House? Are you going to be cheering for me then? Right? It says in verse 28 of Luke 19, it says, When he had said this, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. And he told his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where you enter, and you'll find a colt tied, half, half horse, half donkey, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosening it? Thus you say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way, and they found it. Right? And they said, hey, why are you loosening? And we said, well, the Lord has need of it. And then they brought it to Jesus, and then they threw their clothes onto the colt. Keep note of that. They threw their clothes onto the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And he went, and many spread their clothes. Take note of that as well. Many spread their clothes in front of Jesus. One thing I want to note before I go into kind of the, the bulk of this sermon tonight is that Everyone is eagerly awaiting Jesus to come into town. Like I said, everyone's eagerly awaiting him. They're already imagining these great and amazing things and that he's going to be the next David, right? They think he's going to be the next David, right? That, that he's, going to, he's going to restore kingship, 
right? He's going to take authority away from the Romans and back into the hands of the Hebrews, right? That they're worshiping him for this very reason. Coming from humble beginnings in Bethlehem, right? Jesus, right? Defeating Goliath, right? In this case, their Goliath is the Roman Empire and become king. Hosanna, right? To the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. <clears throat> And they would expect a conqueror like this to come on a war horse, but that's what a king's supposed to do. But Jesus came on a colt. Jesus came on a colt. In Zechariah 9, chapter 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, 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 O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey, Right? So so he's coming on a donkey. He's coming riding on a donkey. And we are going to learn tonight that Jesus and Palm Sunday and this triumphal entry is not full of the triumph man expects, right? That Jesus' triumph sometimes has different definitions than what we would consider triumph. What we would consider victory isn't always what Jesus would consider victory. And we have to be open to that possibility that what we've dreamed up for ourselves might not be where God is headed, right? But God gives us so much direction in the midst of that. And it's amazing. He gives us his word. And and the first thing, there's, there's two things I want us to take away from this passage. There's two main things. And the first one, guys, the first one is that there's a level of commitment and sacrifice that comes with following and worshiping Jesus, Right? There's a level of commitment and sacrifice that comes with being a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus really can't be somebody who just comes and sits and listens to someone for 45 minutes, maybe twice a week. Right? It's it's not really in the DNA of Christ, right? It's not really, it's it's not necessarily ingrained in what the Spirit has and what the mission of God is, right? That there is this level of, I need to sacrifice certain comfortabilities. I need to sacrifice and I need to commit in a way that I'm not used to and makes me feel uncomfortable. A prime example is this. And they brought the donkey to Jesus and they threw their clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him and he went and many spread their clothes on the road. This, one reason I really want us to focus on the cloaks some of you might have heard this before, but I'm going to reiterate it to you if you haven't. Um, if you have, and, and, and this was actually blew my mind when I learned it a few years ago, is that, is that back then, if you were incredibly rich and wealthy, you had three outfits. If, if, if you were a very well-off person, right, you had three outfits. Some of you guys have closets you can walk into, right? And then a separate shelf for all your shoes, right? But, but if you were incredibly, incredibly wealthy back then, you had three outfits, one for nice dinners, right? One for work and another for relaxation, right? That's it. If you were really rich, right? If you were like a Pharisee or a really well-paid priest, or if you were in government or you were a tax collector, that's, that, it was three outfits, man. That's it. That's all you got. You got, you got like three robes and three tunics. That's it. That was the average back then. Three outfits, right? Not a lot to choose from. And they were functional, not fashionable, right? 
They weren't like, oh, what am I going to wear today, right? Like they weren't laying out their clothes on their bed the day before, like I can't wait to wear this outfit, right? There was three, if you were really rich. So we can assume if you're really poor, one, one cloak. One cloak, one tunic, that's it, right? You had your tunic, what you would wear, right? Your clothes, and then you have your cloak that you put over, right? That's it. One important thing is that the disciples sacrificed their time to go get the donkey. But the other thing is that, you know, the disciples were poor. The apostles were poor and they took their only cloak and put it on the donkey for Jesus to have a cushion. Some people took their only cloak and took it off and put it for a donkey ridden by Jesus to trample over. Right? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And and guys, it's... One thing, one thing that we, the legalists will take away from this is like, all right, I got to sacrifice uh, my, my resources. If I just give more money to God, right, I'm good, right? Or if I give this more time to God, I'm good. That's not necessarily what it means. It means that these people, they gave all that they had. They gave the best of what they had. The disciples, they had only one cloak and they decided to give it to Jesus. Would Jesus have been fine without something to sit on, right? He's already riding on a colt, right? Not very comfortable. And, and donkeys are incredibly stubborn. That's why when your coworker or your spouse or your kids are being really, really stubborn, you call them a, a donkey, right? Yeah? You call them a donkey. Oh, that was a rough joke. Okay, sweet. Donkeys are really stubborn, right? Not pleasant, smelly, stinky, Right? Jesus already knew what he was getting himself into. I'm, I'm pretty sure a little cloak wouldn't have been that much greater. However, the disciples said, do you know what we're going to do? And we're going to give all that we can just to show Jesus, do you know what? I'm, I'm all in and I love you, right? I'm all in and I love you. So they gave their only cloak to Jesus. And it's not about giving a specific amount to God. So I don't want you guys to get, come out of here and think, okay, well, I guess I got to give more now. It's not about the amount that you give. It's about giving your best. I, I, I think this is, this is one thing that's very interesting is like I, I work a lot with youth. And these, these youth kids have been like trained like I got, I got to get up at five in the morning and I have to read my Bible, right? But I know them. And at five in the morning, they're no good to anybody, right? They're no good to anybody, right? And, and I advise them, don't, don't, give, don't give just a certain amount of time to God. Give your best time to God, right? Don't give a certain hourly amount of God that you think that, that he requires of you. Give the best time you have to God, right? If I get up at five in the morning, guys, God's not getting my best time, right? All right? I need to eat and I need to, you know, I need to get ready. I need to take a shower, right? God, God gets my best time at around 7, 7 p.m., right? Around 7 p.m. when I'm not here with, with you guys, right? 7 p.m., that's like, that's God's time. He gets that from me. He gets my best. It's not a certain amount. It's, it's the quality, right? It's not quantity. It's quality. We tend to make these standards for ourselves of what we need to give to God, but there's no specific amount. We need our best. And Genesis chapter four is a perfect example of this. Where Abel brought his sacrifice and Cain brought his sacrifice, right? Cain had toiled and worked hard. He had tilled the ground. He had grown these crops. He had chopped these crops. He had picked the best. 
He had done a lot. He had probably plowed the fields. He had probably put in more labor than Abel had. And Cain brought his sacrifice to God. And Abel brought his sacrifice as a little lamb and he killed it. And, 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 and it says, and the Lord said to Cain, you know, why, why are you angry? Why is your countenance falling? For if you do well, will you not be accepted? In Hebrews chapter 11, we, we get to see why Cain, his sacrifice wasn't accepted. And it says in Hebrews 11 verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God the more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, that through he being dead still speaks. Guys, if it was just about the quantity of work or the quantity of time you give God, if it was just about that, right, then Cain would have had the better sacrifice, wouldn't he? He put more time into tilling the ground. He put more effort and sweat and tears, right, into growing crops. But Abel, Abel took care of this little lamb, right? He had had grown attached to this lamb. He loved this lamb. It was the firstborn of his flock. And he had to go before God and kill the lamb. Cain might have put in more work for God, but Abel had more sacrifice for God. Does that make sense? Cain gave more time. Abel gave more of his heart. When you look at the direct translation of, oh, Cain gave the more excellent sacrifice, it means it gave his, he gave his best sacrifice. He did not just give God a sacrifice, he gave him his best. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out there put in their abundance and have put offerings for God, but she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. Put in all the livelihood that she had. If Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who he says he is, if God is who he says he is, he deserves the best that we have to offer. Not just a certain obscure quantity or a monetary value that we ascribe to him. That's why, guys, New Testament tithing is a lot different than Old Testament tithing. You guys know that? New Testament tithing and Old Testament tithing are way different. I know we like to look at Malachi as a means of how, like, where God says, hey, test me, right? Give 10%. But you guys know, actually, New Testament giving is a lot different. New Testament giving is a lot different than 10% of your, of your income. That actually, New Testament giving is us giving of all of our resources to others. There's more generosity in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. The Old Testament says, hey, give 10%. The New Testament says, I want you to sacrifice of your money and your time and your resources, your home, your family. You give of all of it. So, so it's not about ascribing, oh, 10%. All right, that's, that's God's best sacrifice. That's, that's not it anymore. We live in a new covenant, which means God gets everything, not just 10%. He gets all of it. Right? So all of our finances ought to reflect a, a healthy relationship with the Lord, right? Not just 10% of our finances, yeah? Jesus would later on 
Guys, exemplify this for us. The Easter story is about this. Guys, Easter, Easter, guys, is Jesus taking off his cloak of righteousness and putting it on us. Right? Where, where Jesus said, here's my holiness, he took off his cloak and put it on us. And so if Jesus is going to sacrifice his righteousness and give it to us, we ought to sacrifice a little bit of our time and our money and our resources and our, and our love and affections. And we ought to give Jesus that. If he's going to give us the righteousness of the creator God of the universe, ought we to give him something? There's a certain amount of commitment and sacrifice that it takes to be a follower of Jesus. Otherwise, otherwise, guys, those who invest little get little back, right? We know this. That's, uh, that's standard economics. You, the, the less you invest, the less you get out of it. The more I pour myself into the body of Christ, the more I pour into, my, into the kingdom of God, the more I receive in return. And this isn't prosperity gospel. Hey, go, go back there and give more and God will bless you more. That might not happen, right? You might, you might, give, you might just decide, all right, I'm going to give like the next eight of my paychecks entirely and tie them to the church. And God may be like, oh, here's a trial, right? That might happen. But the more you invest of your time, your resources, your heart, and giving quality and not quantity, the more, the more you are going to empty you of yourself and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The more we empty of ourselves to the degree of which, that's, that's to the degree of which we'll be filled with God. The second thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage is how the disciples interacted with Jesus. How the disciples interacted. Where he said, go into the village opposite you. Where you enter, you will find a colt tied which no one has ever sat, loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, where are you loosening it? Thus, thus you say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Later on says, then as, we draw, as he was drawing near to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And we talked about this before, didn't we? I talked about this earlier. That their idea of Jesus' triumph and victory is far different than what Jesus had in mind, isn't it? That their idea of the victory Jesus is going to have in their government is far different from Jesus' vision, right? Right? That they think that their lives are going to be liberated in a certain way, but it turns out Jesus just totally exceeded their expectations, Right? By redeeming not just their, their, their temporary circumstance, but redeeming their internal hearts, right? The second thing I want us to take is this. If you wish to partake in Christ's glory, and this is going to sound totally weird, but if you, if you wish to partake in Christ's glory, you must be willing and content with a slight ignorance of his grand plan. And that's, that's hard, Right? That's really hard. That's really, really hard because we like to know everything, right? We like to know absolutely 100% everything. I like to know everything. My, my life verse is, therefore, do not be foolish, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is, right? And I, 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 it is a firm conviction of mine that everyone's like, oh, I just don't know what God's will is. It's a firm conviction of mine that it, it, <laughs> read the book, right? It's right here. God's will is right here. However, however, there is a way that God moves. There's a way that God moves, which is independent of our interpretation of how he's moving. Right? So, so let, let me try to put things into perspective for you. I'll, I'll, I'll put things into perspective. I'm a youth pastor, and I, and, and I take kids all the time on certain retreats or certain camps and, and all of these things. And, and many, many times I'll have a, a, a trail of kids behind me, and, and I'm, I'm leading them somewhere. I'm leading them somewhere awesome, and it's a surprise, and it's going to be epic. But all I get behind me is, Zach, where are we going? I think we're lost, right? All I hear is, Zach, where's this? Zach, where's that? Like, where, what, what, are, what are we doing? Are we going to get something to eat? Are you going to feed us? Like, no, I'm not going to feed you, right? Like, like I'm going to let you go hungry. Like, that's, that's me, you know? No, it's like, I, I, I'm going to take care of them. I know where we're going. It's a surprise, and I can't wait for them to see it. But if I told them, hey, we're going to go left here, go right here, go wherever, they're just going to start giving their input of what they think is better, right? And so the kids that don't know me, the kids that haven't spent much time with me are the kids always questioning what I'm doing, right? Oh, Zach, where are we going? I don't, I don't, are you lost? Like we're, right? The kids that don't understand me and don't know me and haven't spent time with me have the most questions as to where I'm going. The kids that do know me very well, the kids that I've spent the most time with, the kids that have been with me the longest just walk next to me. They're not asking questions. They just, they know I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to kill them, right? The kids that know me the least are the kids that question me the most, right? They don't have to know the destination. They know who they're following, right? And when I say that if we wish to partake in Christ's glory, we must be willing to be content with a slight ignorance of his grand plan. That's what I mean. I mean, these people are praising God in anticipation of how they assume he's going to assume the throne, right? Overtake Rome and restore providence to the nation of Israel like David did. And do you know how I know that they were praising out of kind of ignorance? Is that there wasn't this type of multitude when Jesus was walking to the cross, right? Right? You don't see anybody laying their cloaks down as Jesus is carrying the cross on his back, right? When Jesus is not meeting their expectations and the guy they thought was going to overthrow Rome is now being beaten by Roman soldiers and carrying a cross on his back on his way to die, uh, they're, they're not putting their cloaks down for him. I don't see any palm fronds going down when Jesus is bleeding on the floor, so obviously, Jesus didn't really live up to their expectations, did he? They're a little disappointed, so the praise kind of stopped. But, but, you know, we know, right? We know. But they're in the midst of this, guys. And we're in the midst of some really trying times, aren't we? Individually, corporately, you know, as a community, nationally, right? Globally, Right? We're going through crazy stuff right now. We're going through crazy, crazy things. We give God, we give to God 
when he meets our expectations. But what about when God doesn't meet our expectations? We'll give God our cloaks when he's riding down, right? And everyone's shouting. But do we give God the cloaks when it's about carrying the cross? You know what I mean? We're sacrificing when, when we know the end goal and we know the cause, right? But are we sacrificing when we really don't even know what the end is? Where there really is no end in sight. And, and, and I get this sometimes when ministering to college students, where they're like really, really, really willing to, to give of themselves to people when they think they're going to get a husband or wife, right? Out of it, right? I see them totally involved with events and the community, right? When, when they just like, I'm going I'm to get a husband or wife out of it, right? And then they start dating someone and then I, they disappear, right? They disappear off the face of the planet. And then they come back. They break up, and then I don't see them again. They're not serving, right? Jesus didn't meet their expectations, and, and they had totally stopped serving in the church because they, they, they thought, oh, God's plan for me is for me to serve here, and then I'll meet somebody, and then we'll get married, and we'll continue to serve at the church, and it'll be awesome. But then they meet someone, and then they date, and then they break up. They're like, oh, God, like, what, what the heck? And then they leave, right? Never see them again. And, here, and here's my point. Right? I'm, I'm going to try to articulate this better. Here's my point. Name one time in the Bible where Jesus did something awesome and disciples are like, called it. <laughs> Knew it, right? Name one time in the Bible where Jesus performs this epic miracle or walks on water and does something amazing, right? And the disciples are like, I knew that, right? Called it, right? I already, didn't I tell you, John? Didn't I tell you? Told you that was going to happen, right? None of the disciples are like that. Every single time they're on their knees like, I can't believe what's happening right now. I can't believe what's happening. And my point is, since the disciples, in, even in the midst next to Jesus, were never really fully in the loop. They always open themselves up to, oh my, this is amazing, God. You truly are the son of God. They are just constantly in awe of what was happening. And do you know what, guys? Do you know what I, I, I have been learning lately? Is, is that you look at future faithfulness through the lens of past faithfulness. Right? You don't know what's going to happen, but you know what God's done in the past. You may, the, uh, the future may be super uncertain as to what's going to happen, right? But you, you look at the past and you know God is going to be faithful. And when you look back, you realize that you were never really in the loop at anything God was doing in your life, right? Some of you guys have had God do some amazing things in your life and never once were you like, I knew that was going to happen, right? Knew it, called it. God's in the business of just wanting to inspire awe in you. That's why, that's why I'm realizing something. You realize this being in college, but I also realize this, you know, being among, um, among church members and just being in the Christian community. And, and one thing that liberals and conservatives have in common, one thing Democrats and Republicans have in common, one thing Christians and atheists have in common, is that a lot of them like to say, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt Blank, right? But one thing, guys, I, I think is beautiful about Christianity 
One thing I think that is profoundly beautiful about following Jesus is that, is that we can have faith even when there is a little doubt. That, that when the atheist has doubt, when, when, when other people have doubt, that they have to go look for other things to cling on to. They have, they have to stray outside their belief system or their worldview to go and hang on to something. But, but, but when I experienced that, when you and I experienced that, we can continue to hold on to the object of our faith even in the midst of that. That's why I think it is a very ignorant statement to say, we believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that blank is blank. I think that without a little bit of doubt, there's no wonder. There is no awe. Because, because guys, the times in my life where I have no idea what God is doing and he just comes in and he blows my mind are the times where I worship him the most. And so we have to leave ourselves open to this. Saying, you don't know exactly what God's doing in your life. You don't know his exact plan, but you know his character. You don't know exactly what he wants to do with your life and what ten, the 10 year, or the 20 year is going to look like. You don't know. We love to say, oh, the end times are coming. You don't know. But isn't that great? Because when it does come, isn't it going to blow your mind? When Jesus comes back for his bride, wouldn't you rather be surprised? Wouldn't you rather be like, Jesus, that was perfect timing. Rather than Jesus, you're late. I, I, we need, there's a certain amount of humility that is attached to wonder. Uh, a certain amount of pride that's attached to saying, oh, we know for sure, absolutely what God's doing. But there's humility in saying, do you know what? I don't know what God's doing right now, but I know who he is. I don't, I don't know exactly where God's moving here. But I know he's good. And I know he loves me. And let that be a comfort to you, Christian. Let that, let, let that be a comfort to you in times of doubt. Or in times of doubt, you don't, have to, you don't have to grasp on conspiracy theories. You don't have to grasp onto uh, what, whatever, whatever wind of doctrine kind of explains it. You can, you can simply rest in the knowledge of who God is. And know that because of who he is, he's going to take care of you. And I'm not saying that the, there's no certainty, right? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not about to go get postmodern on you and say there's no absolute truth, right? That's, that's not what I'm saying. There's absolute truth about who God is. There's absolute truth about what he wants to do. But what I'm saying is, guys, is some of you are at a crossroads in your life. Some of you are in the midst of a lot of trials and doubt in your life where you just don't understand what God is doing. And God, instead of, instead of God answering and telling you exactly what he's doing, what he might tell you is say, give me your cloak. He, he's not always going to tell you what he's doing, but he's going to remind you of who he is and how much he loves you. And out of that, guys, out of that humility of saying, I don't know what you're doing, the Lord, but I trust you. 
the end result is going to be far more glorious because there was no arrogance in it, right? There was no arrogance. There was no puffed up prideful knowledge. Just a simple, I just can't wait to see what God does next. That's what Palm Sunday is about. Palm Sunday, it's about worshiping God in the midst of uncertainty. It's about knowing that God eventually is going to disappoint your expectations, but the end result is going to be far greater than you ever imagined. Good Friday is about God performing his will despite what you and I will ever do or try to do to thwart it, right? That's what Good Friday is about. Good Friday is about God saying, I'm going to die for you whether you ask for it or not. You may have asked for a king, you may have asked for this, but I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to die for you. I'm going to go to the cross because I love you. Some, of you. some of you parents in here have done things for your children that they don't understand, but you're going to do it anyways because you love them. And then Easter, guys, Easter is celebrating the culmination of us in the midst of total ignorance, still worshiping Jesus, God doing what he's going to do despite our ignorance, and then us celebrating the end result. Oh my gosh, he rose again, right? Because no disciple was like, oh yeah, see, Jesus said it before, right? He was going to rise again. Like, what are you guys tripping out about? Everyone, their minds were blown, right? Every single disciple was like, I can't believe he just did that, right? And isn't that awesome? So Easter, this Sunday, we're going to be celebrating that. The culmination of all the things God is going to do despite our conspiracy theories or, or certain theological bends or whatever, whatever doctrines we hold to. That God's just going to do what he wants and he's going to bless you no matter what. Right? Whether you expect it or not. Right? So let's have that attitude of worship as we go into Good Friday and as we go into Easter right? And let's bring our friends so that they can experience that same joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we, we desire to be in awe of you, to be in wonder of you. God, um, I pray that there'd be a certain amount of sacrifice that we would give to you, Lord, especially during this holiday where, Lord, uh, that we would be the hands and feet that uh, bring your good news at a time where the harvest is ripe. God, that we would co-labor with you in bringing people to your feet. Father, I pray that on Good Friday, we would be soberly reminded that you were in charge of sin and death and that this Sunday we would be able to celebrate, God, celebrate your grand plan to redeem souls and to put your spirit within us. So Father, bless this time and I pray that we would be constantly living in a humility of awe We'd be never so arrogant to know, to assume exactly what you're doing, God. But rather, we would follow you faithfully. And we'd know your character, even though we don't always know your plan. So Lord, help us in that, God, because doubt sucks. Lord, but you are good. So Lord, we, we pray these things. In Jesus' holy name, amen.